So we're, we're at the, we're at the uh, final stretch of a series that began uh, a little bit about a month ago, a little over a month ago, uh, looking at this idea, we're calling it the pursuit of spiritual maturity. And we're taking a look at Philippians chapter four and looking at this letter that Paul writes to the church at Philippi. And we see in this chapter, specifically focusing on chapter four, um, that Paul is affirming the areas of spiritual maturity that he saw present in the lives of those who were in the church of Philippi. This church that was very near and dear to Paul's heart, he had planted this church and there was a very special affection between the church at Philippi and the apostle Paul. And, and so we see Paul will affirm areas of maturity that he sees present in their life. And at the same time, in a way that only he could do, he has a way of spurring us on as well to greater positions of maturity because Paul loved the church at Philippi. Paul loved the church. And it was Paul's desire to see the church flourish and be all that God has designed it to be. And really, all Paul was doing was he was a reflection of the father heart of God who wants to see us flourish and be all that we can be. It's God who is working in us and it's God who has a plan and purpose for our life so that we might flourish and experience his goodness and his, and his, his, his love and his graciousness. And so we've been looking at that this last number of weeks, beginning in ver, uh, verse one of chapter four. And so far we've discussed the, the pursuit of spiritual maturity in our companionship. And we see how our maturity ought to impact the relationships around us, right? The companionships that we have around us. We looked at the pursuit of spiritual maturity in our character and we see how Paul calls them to look up to God and look outward to the world and inward towards themselves because the way we view God and the world and ourselves has everything to do with our character. And then we looked at his call to consider the way of, of, what the, of the things that they consider, the pursuit of spiritual maturity in their consideration, the things that they think about. Right, and oftentimes what we think about becomes, is what feeds our actions, what feeds our lifestyles. And so Paul calls them to be careful to and consider the things that we entertain in our mind because what we entertain in our mind becomes our fourth thing, our conduct, the way in which we conduct ourselves with the world around us, uh, with God, with our family, with our church and everything else. And then we looked at verse 10, his, his call to spiritual maturity in our concern for others, to make sure that our, our concern for others is authentic, that it's not just based on what people can do for us, but based on who people are to us. And we see a genuine concern that the church of Philippi had for the apostle Paul. It wasn't tied to anything that they were giving to him. It was tied to who he was. And so we looked at those five areas uh, there, and today we're going to conclude this section of scripture looking at two more. But before we look at those two, I want to kind of go back to verse 10 and kind of highlight something that um, ties into what we started talking about last week and kind of ties into where we're going here. And so uh, let's see where we left off. Verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4. Paul writes and says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. 
I want to point out something that serves, again, as a bridge from where we were last week to kind of where we're going to go today. Paul puts into practice what we've been talking about earlier, about the importance of relationships and and believing the best in people and not coming to wrong conclusions prematurely and and really guarding our minds from being negative and critical towards other people in the area of relationships. And, And I like the way Paul verbalized this. He says, I've rejoiced at length that you've revived your concern for me. And he says, it wasn't that you didn't care it's just he lacked opportunity. In other words, you, you, you really wanted to meet the needs that I had, but you just didn't have the opportunity to meet those needs. I love that. He believes the best in the church of Philippi. He wasn't like, you forgot about me, you know? You said you loved me. You said you cared about me. You said you were concerned about me. But as soon as I was gone, you, the, the support had stopped, right? The, par- the prayer stopped. And no. He, he, he gives them the benefit of the doubt. What a great example for us to follow after because, because sometimes it's easier to draw conclusions about a person's lack of follow through and write them off as, well, they just don't care. Sometimes we do that to guard our own heart from being hurt. We size somebody up and we think, well, this isn't a safe person. And so I'm just gonna assume the worst and write them off. All the while we're missing what could be an opportunity to have a really healthy, deep friendship. And so we need to be be intentional about believing the best. And that's what Paul says here. He's like, I'm rejoicing that you revived your concern for me. You always thought, you're always concerned. You just didn't have the opportunity to do it. And I think that we can learn from that, especially especially in this critical culture in which we live in, that we're always kind of like, you know, who do we write off and who do... No, just believe the best. Listen, here's one way. Anybody ever been hurt in a relationship before? Okay, just want to make sure we're same audience, right? So here's one way you will never get hurt in a relationship. You ready? Don't have a relationship with somebody. And here's one way that you will never thrive in a relationship. You don't have a relationship with somebody. You see, relationships have risks. But I want to tell you the rewards are far greater than the pain. And so believe the best. And that's what we see in Paul here. And I I just wanted to kind of circle back to that this morning and and just say, you know what, it it, it really, I appreciate that Paul, obviously it's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the word of God that that allows that to be there for us. But but we get some insight into the apostle Paul that 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 he believed the best. And I think that that's a model that we would do well to follow after. Verse 10, so I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And he goes, look, not that I'm speaking of, of being in need. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What a profound passage of scripture we, hear, we see here. The sixth element of maturity that I want us to kind of zoom in on this morning is the pursuit of spiritual maturity in our contentment. In our contentment. The ability to be content. 
One of the most significant areas of our spiritual maturity can be, can be seen in our ability to be content because there is something in our nature, our sinful nature, our old sinful nature that always wants more, that is always looking for the next thing. You know where that started? It started with Satan, right? Who wasn't content with being an angel of the Lord that led in worship. He wanted to rise above the awesome, the, 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 um, the person of God, and he wanted to be worshiped, right? He wasn't content with what he had and where he was. He wanted more. Now you've got Adam and Eve in the garden, right? God gives them everything they need, but they're not satisfied with what they have. Satan now tempts them with the same temptation that he had and says, hey, listen, if you eat of the tree, God doesn't want you to do that because he's afraid you'll be like him. Don't you want more than what God has given to you? And they also fall because of their pursuit for more. And as, as, as just our human nature, as a result of that, there's this drive and this desire for always wanting more, always looking for the next thing. The problem with that is, now there's a healthy drive that everyone of us ought to have, but we need to make sure that our drive for more doesn't detour us from what God has for us. Contentment is what God calls us to because the problem with this drive for more and this, this, this always seeking the next thing is we're never satisfied then with what we have and we're never appreciating where we are. I remember we, you know, a couple of, we, we had an opportunity a couple of times to go cross country and inevitably the, the question from the kids would always be like, oh, where's the next stop? Where, what are we going to do next? Don't worry about what we're going to do next. Let's enjoy where we are now, right? Let's, let's, let's get everything we can out of now and then we'll appreciate next, right? But no, that's, that our human nature is before we really engage in now, we want to see what's next, right? And so what ends up happening is we forfeit the ability to appreciate what we have now and where we are now because we're not looking at now, we're looking at next and we miss something. Joseph Heller, uh, the author of a book called Catch-22, was once at a party in the Hamptons. And a guy came over to him and pointed at a young 25-year-old standing in the party who worked for a big hedge fund company. And Heller's friend said to him, you see that guy over there? He made more money last year than you will ever make with all of your books combined. And Joseph Heller said, well, maybe so, but I have one thing that guy will never have. His friend was skeptical and he said, oh yeah, well, what is that? And Heller said, enough. I have enough. Spiritual maturity in our contentment wraps our arms around what God provides for us at the moment and says, Enough. That doesn't mean that God doesn't provide more down the road, but the, 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 the idea is that we are not the ones driving that ship, God is. And so we're being content with where we are now. So it's wrapping our arms around what God has provided for us and saying enough, but that's a lot easier said than done. You know why? Because the contentment bone is connected to the control bone. 
and the control bone is connected to the trust bone. And the trust bone is either going to be connected to God or it's going to be connected to you and what you have for your life. And you see, if I am, if everything comes down to my drive, my push, my wants, it's going to affect my trust, it's going to affect my control, and it's going to affect my contentment. But if I am realizing that what, I, what God wants for me is enough, I can be content, I can relinquish control, and I can be at peace because he's trustworthy. But that's so counterintuitive to, to many of the ways we kind of, we grew up and, and ways in which maybe we have seen modeled for us. And, and that's not a call to kind of not enjoy the things that, and, that you have, but it's to make sure that our, our, the essence of who we are isn't defined by the things that we have or don't have. It gets difficult sometimes because not everything that we want is something God wants for us, right? Just because I want it, you know, sometimes we can approach God like a two-year-old. I see it, therefore I want it. I want it, therefore I, therefore I should have it. Isn't that like, you know, the, you know, the, the two-year-old, like mine, 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 mine. You know, and we can be like that as Christians, as Christians sometimes. We're like, no, no, mine, mine, mine. God's saying, oh, if I gave this to you, it would mess up your life. It would change the way you see your family. It would change the way you see God. It would change. God keeps things from us, not, to, not because he wants us to avoid having good things. He keeps things from us to, to protect us from having things that will hurt us. And contentment is cr critically important. I appreciate Paul's humility and the way in which he presents this section. He doesn't present it like, you know, hey, I came to faith and all of a sudden I just was content. I never struggled with having a lot or a little. It just kind of came very natural to me. No, he doesn't say that. What he says is, he says, I learned this. This is something that didn't come natural. This was a process. I love that because it puts me right in the same school as the Apostle Paul because there's some things that just don't come natural and this isn't one of them. Look what he says here. He says in verse 11, not that I'm speaking in need, uh, speaking of being in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every and any circumstance, he says, I learned the secret of facing plenty and being in hunger, of having abundance and being in need. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul recognizes there's a process of employing this truth of contentment into our lives that is contrary to our sinful nature. Now, twice in this section, Paul's acknowledging that contentment is something he had to learn because it wasn't a natural default for him and it wasn't a natural default for anybody. And he points out two areas that he had to learn to be content. He was content in whatever situation he found himself that refers to your location, that might refer to your job, that might refer to your community, that might refer to wherever you find yourself, but it has to do with a place. He recognized he had to learn to be content in whatever situation he found himself in. Can I tell you, the apostle Paul found himself in some really difficult situations. 
Paul spent many a night in the prison cells. Instead of fighting against that and, 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 and pouting about that, Paul was content with where he had because he knew God had him there that as a result of that, he began to write letters which make up about three quarters of the New Testament that we enjoy today. In fact, this letter that he's writing to the church of Philippi was written from a prison cell. How does a guy do that? Because he was content with where God had him. This, the grass is, is always green, isn't always greener on the other side. Too many times you're, you get so consumed looking at where we want to go that we can't really appreciate where we currently are. The story is told about a, a pilot who, who looked down intently on a certain valley in, in the Appalachians when, he, when his plane would pass by. Every time it passed by, he would look very intently at this valley until one day his co-pilot said, what's so interesting about that spot? The pilot replied, you see that stream right there? When I was a little boy, I used to sit on a rock and I used to look up at the planes that would drive by, fly by, and I thought, I can't wait till the day comes where I could finally fly. And now I look down from that plane and I only wish I was out fishing. Be content with where you are so you can experience the blessing of what God is doing in your life at the moment. And then secondly points out with being content, not only with where you, where you are, but with what you have. He said, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in every and any circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty of having a lot. And I know what it is to be hungry of having being in abundance and being in need. You can't help but appreciate the heart of the Apostle Paul. Whether it was in circumstances or in provision, he recognized the sovereignty of God in his life. Which is why he was able to come to the conclusion that he did in saying, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I've had a lot and have had little, I've had abundance, and I've been in need wherever I find myself, and whatever I do have or don't have, I've learned something. That I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, because what I have and where I am is not tied to my person, isn't tied to my identity, isn't tied to what God is to me. He found his contentment in God, in God alone. Your ability to be content is directly connected to your awareness of Christ's lordship over your life. Now, lordship is not a word that we are familiar with here in America, but uh, when we call somebody our Lord, we're recognizing they are in charge. They are the head. They are the one that calls the shots. He is the pilot. We are the co-pilots. Or maybe we're in a back seat, Right? And our ability to be content is directly connected. Now this sounds good, but we need to bring it from sounding good to really knowing in our knower that our real sense of contentment is connected to our awareness that Jesus is Lord 
over our life. When we, rel when we relinquish control of our life over to Christ, it matures our trust in Christ. And as our trust in Christ matures, so does our contentment in circumstances or in provision. So what are some assessing questions that we have been looking at these last number of weeks? And, and I understand a lot of these questions will be up on our website. So in case you don't have a chance to jot them all down, they'll be available for you. Because my hope is not that, my hope is that, that, that this becomes more than just a Sunday morning experience. But, but because the pursuit of more, but the, the pursuit of maturity doesn't necessarily take place just on the Sunday morning but it's what we do with the content in the course of the week. And so just some assessing questions to make us feel, and they're designed to make you feel uncomfortable. I'll just put that out there. Um, uh, because you know what? I think we need, we need to be willing to examine our own hearts. Now, it's not to make you feel uncomfortable here because nobody's gonna raise their hands and chime in unless a husband points at a wife and says, yeah, that's his or vice versa. Um, but this is some things that we might be able to uh, bring to our time alone with the Holy Spirit and, and examine our own hearts because that's where, that's where maturity comes in. So a couple of questions that might be worth asking ourselves is this, if nothing changes in my life, am I still willing to be content? If nothing changes in my life, am I still willing to be content. See, sometimes we're holding on to something changing and say, well, that, when that happens, finally I'll be content. No, be content with where you are and God will either change your circumstances or he will change you in the midst of your circumstances. Secondly, do I struggle to embrace where I, have currently, where, where I am currently or am I always looking for the next move? Do I struggle to embrace where I am currently? Or am I always looking for what's next? What's next? Here's one. What does be still and know that I'm God look like in your life? What does be still and know, Psalm 46, that I am God, what does that look like in your life? Here's one. Does my striving for more keep me from growing spiritually? Am I so distracted to get that position, that promotion, that whatever, that place? Am I striving so much for that that I don't have time to grow spiritually? Do people who are close to you often remind you to slow down? Sometimes we're moving so quick, we don't even realize we're not content. But everybody around us knows. So do people around you remind you to slow down? Here's one, it's a little bit like the other one. What does enough look like in your life? What does enough look like? in my life. And then lastly, here's one. Why do I want these things in my life? Why, 
Am I, am, I, am I seeking some level of significance that I didn't feel like I get in any other way? Listen, no matter how much you have, no matter where you are, if your significance is tied to what you have, you will never, ever be content. That's why you've got people buying one house to another, moving from one car to another, upgrading constantly, always changing, always moving. They're, what are they really doing? They don't realize, you see, at the moment, they get a rush, right? They get the new house, they get the new car, they get the new whatever, and it's kind of like, this is great, but then it wears off really quick, doesn't it? Because it's not designed to satisfy. And so what worked now doesn't work anymore, so I need to get this, and the newer model, and the bigger payment, and this or that, and that doesn't work anymore. And so we move from move and move. And what we're really trying to do is to fill this God-shaped hole in our heart that only God can fill, which is what brings contentment into our lives. Why do I want these things in my life? So how do I, how do I grow in this area? Growth in this area is contingent on how you follow up after prayerfully assessing your situation. It's what we do with these questions. It's how we employ these questions. It's how we grow from these questions. It's how we move out from these questions, how we prioritize and respond based on these questions. Listen, the pursuit of more can result in having less than God has for us. The pursuit of more can result in having less than God has for us. Sometimes, listen, there's a lot of people who settle for what they can get on their own. And because they're pursuing that, they're missing what God has for them. Jesus said this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Put God in his will first and contentment will follow. In fact, when you put God first, you will find that the things oftentimes that you wanted, you know, the things that you needed, the things that you felt like you really had to have, is it, if it wasn't something that God has for you, as you're pursuing God, you will see your desire for those things begin to dissipate. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will put into you the things you ought to be desiring. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's just stop right there, right? That's like a great word, right? Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world, right? There's no U-Hauls behind a hearse. You can't take it with you, right? For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Is it wrong to be rich? It's not wrong to be rich. It's wrong to desire to be rich. It's wrong to pursue being rich, to prioritize being rich. But those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Is money evil? No. Money is neutral. The love of money, the craving of money, the pursuit of money is what creates this sinful passions to get more of it. 
It is through, look, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, the pursuit of money, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Sometimes God doesn't get you what you think you need because he knows that's going to be the end result. The pursuit of those things are going to get you off course for what God has for you. Paul links godliness and contentment with how people deal with money. Can't miss it right there. And you see, you can't talk about spiritual maturity without bringing up the stewardship of one's finances. Many teachers have said that, that money is the most talked about subject in the entire Bible. I don't agree with that. Now, money is mentioned more than any other subject in the Bible, but it is not the essence. It is not the, it is not the essence of the subject. It is not that money is so much talked about as is stewardship and how we view money. Money is used in the scriptures as an object lesson that reveals the priorities of our heart and our spiritual maturity. You can't miss, we see it from Genesis to Revelation, we see clear teaching on how we are to view resources and how we are to steward those things. And that's the next subject that Paul addresses with the Philippian church. Look at verse 14. He says, yes, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginnings of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. The last section we're going to look at in this series is the pursuit of spiritual maturity in our contributions. I jokingly said earlier that, that, that this, is where we, we, this is where we need to guard uh, and employ the pursuit of spiritual maturity in our consideration. Because I know there's people who are listening right now and thinking, ah, see, that's what this four weeks was all about. This whole buildup was about to get to the issue of money. Uh, if you know me well enough, you know how ridiculous that is. Um, but we need, to, we need to address this important area of discipleship because the scripture has much to say about money. I love how the apostle Paul goes about addressing the subject of money here. He doesn't present it in, a, in any kind of an arm twisting, uh, manipulative kind of way, right? There's no, there's no demand that the church gives any money to him. In fact, nowhere will you see Paul demand anything. Why? Because Paul knew his supply wasn't coming from people. It wasn't coming from the church. He was coming from God. That's why he was able to say that God would provide all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But look how he points out the specific ways in which the Philippian church stood with him. He says, you shared with me in my trouble. When things weren't going right, you, you stepped up and you were, you were there for me. In fact, he's, he says, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. At one point in Paul's ministry, the only church that was supporting him was the church of Philippi. Now, why is that? Because a lot of the church really 
was afraid of the Apostle Paul still because they had heard that this was the same guy, Saul, before he came to Christ, who was persecuting and destroying the church. And so before they supported him, they wanted to make sure he was the real deal. But the church of Philippi stepped up and Paul says, when nobody else was there supporting me, you were there. He says, even in Thessalonica, Thessalonica when, I, when I wasn't even in your presence, you helped me in my needs time and time again. And so we see that the Philippians, the Philippian church's love for God and the Philippian church's love for Paul and their love for the mission really manifested itself in the giving of contributions. That is clearly an example of spiritual maturity. But Paul's response of, of how he viewed their contribution really nails the proper view of financial stewardship. The way in which Paul addresses and responds to their giving gives us some really great insight on how we are to give. This must be read with the understanding that Paul desired that the Philippian church would continue to mature and thrive in their walk with Jesus. All throughout, we see, his, you know, again, this, this was the church that he said, you're my joy and my crown. Paul's desire was to see them thrive in their walk with Jesus. Look what he says here. After he makes reference of, uh, of their giving, he says, look, not that I seek the gift. It's not that I'm looking at getting more from you. No, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. My desire for you, Philippian church, is not to get more, but I wanna rejoice with you to see how God blesses your faithfulness. Look at verse 18, he says, the gifts you sent, they were a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to me. No, he doesn't say that. He says it is a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It might've been directed toward the ministry of the apostle Paul, but it was received by God himself. And as they sowed into the ministry of the apostle Paul, ultimately they were sowing into the kingdom of God and God was receiving that offering as an act of worship and it pleased God. The point is that, that Paul who referred to Philippi as his joy and crown rejoiced in knowing they understood the principles of stewardship that sowing into his ministry was sowing into the kingdom of God. Giving to him indirectly was giving to God directly. Paul wasn't rejoicing in what they gave. He rejoiced in how they gave. Because in the end of the day, everything we have is God's. Everything we have is God's. Now we all know that up here. But what we see in the Philippian church is an awareness, and we see this in the church of Acts big time as well, the, 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 um, the putting in motion of that testimony is, 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 is what we see in this taking place in the Philippian church. We are stewards of what he's entrusted into our care. We're not owners. There's a big difference between being a steward and an owner, right? A steward uses the resources consistent with what the owner would have them to do because the owner owns it. When I obey God in the tithe, 
We think about tithing. Tithing is, is the giving of a tenth, is what the scripture, a, tenth, a tithe literally means tenth, right? So tithing, the giving of the tenth, is something we see as early on, this idea of stewardship and ownership, we see early on at the Garden of Eden. This, this was given before the law was ever introduced. And it continues all throughout the scriptures. And so when I bring the tithe to God, I am recognizing that God is the owner of everything that I have and I am a steward of what God owns. A steward carries out the will of the owner. And in this case, as Paul mentions, it's received by God as an offering, as a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. Their obedience to God's command is why Paul was able to say with confidence, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You've got the most important thing taken care of. You're giving to God and because you're giving to God. I know this, that God will supply every one of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Sadly, the conversation about money in church is often very explosive. There's been a lot of abuse in the church when it comes to finances. There's been a lot of manipulation. There's been a lot of leaders that have fleeced the sheep to build their own empires and to fund their own dreams. And that extreme has caused an extreme reaction of distrust and a shutdown, if you will, when it comes to finances. And that's unfortunate because regardless of the extreme examples that we've seen out there, God's word doesn't change. And I've seen some extreme examples. I was talking to a buddy of mine. We used to go to a church together um, years back and Man, they, that, that dude knew how to work an offering. I mean, the whole service was geared towards the offering. They had a number that they were going to hit every Friday night when they had church. It was like $45,000. And if that offering number didn't hit that mark, the plates came out again. There was times, I kid you not, three times in one Friday night service, the offering would be keep coming out and it would be with the manipulation and the coercion. And, all, and it was kind of like, what are we doing? And so, and people, good-hearted people, wanting to give to God, thinking this is what they got to do. And then as they realize what a, what a detriment that was and how wrong that was, it creates the shutdown. I get that. I get that. But we need to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you've ever been around this church for any length of time, you realize finances is not something I make a point of talking about, certainly never appealing to you about, but it's part of our discipleship. It's part of our growing in, our, in, in, in maturing in the faith. And so it's important that we have an understanding of what the scriptures teach about finances. And so what, what are some assessment questions, right? Here, here you ready? There's some seatbelts. We installed them into your seats. You can put your seatbelts on for these. Um, here's some assessment questions that are good for you to kind of, again, not feel guilty about. God doesn't operate in the area of guilt. But here's some questions that'd be good for you to kind of bring to the Holy Spirit and say, God, you know, where am I at in this area? Number one, do I get uncomfortable talking about money in church? Why or why not? A paraphrase question might be, 
Do you have a knot in your stomach right now? <laughs> I don't. Do I get uncomfortable when talking about finances in church? Why or not? Why not God? Why does that bother me so much? Here's another one. Does my current giving reflect my awareness that God owns everything? Does my current giving reflect my awareness that God owns everything? Do I honor God in giving him my tithe? Or do I keep the tithe for myself? Do I honor God in giving him the tithe? Or do I keep that for myself? Here's one. Do I really trust God for my provision? Or do I trust the company I'm working for, for my provision? Or my retirement check or my pension or whatever, you know, where is our trust? Because we live, you know, we, we realize that the economy is as stable, right, as, as, as the potholes on the expressway, right? And, and so is my provision, is my trust in God for my provision tied to where I work, tied to where I work, or to God himself? And then fifth, and here most importantly, am I willing to trust God in this area of my life? Is this an area that I'm willing to trust God in my life? You see, those are hard questions and I get that. They're designed to be. But just like all the others that we've looked at, these, these are to be considered between you and the Holy Spirit to allow God to, 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 to influence you apart from manipulation, apart from coercion, apart from the emotional drama that is often tied to the subject. It's not my heart. But it is my heart to raise your awareness that this is something the scripture clearly teaches about. So how do I grow in this area? Number one, develop a proper understanding of biblical stewardship. Develop a proper understanding of biblical stewardship. Know what the word says. Don't trust just what you hear coming over the pulpit or over the airwaves. God's giving you his word to see what God has to say about the subject. A lot of people are led astray because of some charismatic personality that was able to, you know, woo them out of their checkbook. Develop a proper understanding of biblical stewardship. We give in response to God's generosity towards us, not under compulsion or from manipulation. We give, we give because we get to not because we have to. You understand the importance? There's a big difference between those two. We ought not to be giving out of manipulation or coercion, but out of response of God's goodness and, generation, and, and generosity. Secondly, we give out of obedience. We give out of obedience. Listen, I'm gonna go on record and say, sometimes it's, a lot, it's hard to give. My wife and I have tithed from the day we were married and we've tithed before we were married. Sometimes, it's harder than others. I get it. And we're not feeling it. You know what I mean? But we do it out of obedience because the scripture calls us to and we've seen God respond and meet our needs in ways that we never thought possible. Thirdly, we give joyfully knowing that God receives it as an offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. 
right? Developing a proper understanding of a biblical stewardship calls us to give joyfully, to give cheerfully. And listen, the only way we can give joyfully and cheerfully, let's be really honest. If Jesus were here today and Jesus were taking an offering right now, wouldn't you be excited about giving it to him? I mean, seriously, I mean, like you don't have to raise your hand, but I know I would. I'd probably be more generous than I really am. You know what I mean? Like, give it all, you know? And, and so th- th- we need to recognize that when we're giving, we're giving to God. Because here's the thing. When we fail to recognize we're giving to God, it's very easy for us to be critical of all the crazy people and leaders and stuff in the world. Now we need to give in a way that we're good stewards. And I'll just say this. If you're giving to a church, maybe you're listening on TV and, and, and you're not getting like an annual statement. You're not getting input on the budget of your church. You're not, you know, if you're, if you're seeing that, you know, the, the, the pastor's living like super high on the hog and, and nobody's aware of anything going on. Um, part of being a good steward is being able to speak into those, questions, those things and asking honest questions. Not out, of, not, out, not out of criticism, but out of wanting to know. And that's one of the reasons why from the beginning, we've always been very open about our books. This is what's come in. This is what goes out. Here's where it goes. We're very careful because we recognize the place in which we live, certainly. But part of being a good steward is having an idea of where those resources are going. And so developing a proper understanding of biblical stewardship. Secondly, we grow in this area by obeying God's word. It's by obedience. Now, many who are listening to this, you get it already. You understand. And, and, and those, I've never met somebody who tithes that struggles financially. I didn't say they have everything they want, but every one of their needs. You can't, make, you can't get a regular tither to stop, get, to stop tithing. You can't because they've seen the blessing of God and the benefits of that faithfulness, right? So we need to, we need to um, so I recognize that there's those who are, are, you know, are regularly giving, but for others, I know this is a real big struggle. This is something that's kind of like off the hook, different. And so what do I do with that? I would just bring it to Jesus without guilt and shame and, and feeling manipulated or in, in any way, just saying, Jesus, how do I honor you in this area? Maybe it's starting small and, and ready for this. And then test God in that. Test God in that. You say, well, what test God? You can't test God. You're right. The scripture says we're not supposed to test God. But there's one place the scripture says we can test God. There's only one passage in scripture that gives us permission to test God. And we see this in Malachi chapter three. Let's take a look at that. Malachi chapter three and verse eight. God is speaking and he says, will a man rob God? Imagine that. (laughs) Robbing God. Right? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, God says. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And God gives instruction. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And then God says, and I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be land in the land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And so we see this invitation from God. He's addressing the importance and the, and, and the mandate of the tithe. 
And so what do we see here? Number one, to not tithe is to rob God. I mean, if I, if I, if I gave you, you know, if I said, mom, here's a hundred dollars. Can you just hold this for me? And, 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 and I, you know, it's my money, right? But just need you to hold this for me. And then I come back a day later and I probably won't get it back. But I, <laughs> I come back and I say, hey, can I, can I get that money back? Uh, you know, just, just give me, just give me $10 out of the, out of the hundred. Just give me 10%. And you say, no, I'm like, I'm not giving you that. No, 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 no. You, you can keep 90. Hold on to the 90. Use it to do what you need to do. Just give me the 10. It's my money. And you say, no, I, I'm keeping it. What are you doing? You're robbing me. It's my money, right? And that's really what tithing is. God's saying, I own it all. And I'm going to let you hold on to 90% and you give God what's his. And here's the thing. And this is everyone who tithes will raise their hand and say, absolutely, don't raise your hand now. But those who tithe will, will definitely say, this is true. We have learned, I'll just share from our own personal testimony. We have been able to do more with 90% than 100% would ever take us. It doesn't work out on paper. It's just what God does. It doesn't make sense. Why? Because God honors the giving. To not tithe is to rob God. To not tithe brings a curse on our finances, the scripture says. What does that mean? Well, it means that, 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 that our finances just don't go as far and aren't as plentiful and they don't work for us the way they're designed to work for us. We can't keep praying to God to meet our financial needs if we're not honoring God in the tithe. What's what the scripture says. He says the tithe, he says bringing the whole tithe to the storehouse. Notice he doesn't say the contributions. We see a clear distinction between the tithe and the contributions or the offerings. The offerings can go wherever they want to. God says, God calls them to bring the tithe to the storehouse. Where's the, where's the storehouse? The storehouse is your local church. It's the community of believers you're a part of. And so he said, bring the tithe to the storehouse. And then God invites them, test me in this. Again, it's the only place that God says, you can test me, test me. I know it's gonna be hard. So you can test me in this area and see if I will not pour out a blessing on you in such a way that you, all of your needs will be met. And I love what God says here. And he says, look, and it's the only place where I see God say he'll do this. I will rebuke the devourer for you. I love that. What's the devourer? The devourer is that thing that comes in and sucks the finances out from under us. Maybe, you know, whether it's, you know, the, th the things break down quicker, right? They don't go as long, whatever it may be, those things that we find ourselves always having to dish out money for this or that or the other thing. God says, you honor me with your finances and I will rebuke, I will keep at bay that which is taking your resources. And then lastly, we see in this passage, that you'll be blessed. That your life will be a testimony for others to see the goodness and faithfulness of a generous God. Hard to, hard to process, I get that, for some, not for everybody. What's my motive in bringing this to you? Is it to, is it to increase the giving of the church? No, this isn't a response to anything. The giving has been wonderful. The church has been, you've been, they've been great. They, you know, you've, been, you've been faithful and generous and that's a, that's a wonderful thing. My, my motive in all this is to bring it to you because it's a discipleship issue. It's a maturity. This is the area we, we, we grow as we're pursuing our spiritual maturity. Our resources are really tied to our, our awareness of Christ's lordship and our, our awareness of Christ's lordship is really what uh, and, um, releases maturity in our life. But mostly in the, in the words of the apostle Paul, why do I bring this to you? Not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. 
I desire to see this maturity that follows and the opportunity to continue to advance the gospel together. I want to see the fruit that God applies to our credit. I'm not calling anybody and reminding anybody to put in motion anything we haven't been doing ourselves and we've seen the goodness and faithfulness of God all along. And so as we look at Philippians chapter four, we see Paul laying out beautifully for us this pursuit of spiritual maturity. We see it in our companionship. We see it in our character. We see it in our consideration. We see it in our conduct. We see it in our concern. We see it in our contentment. And we see it in our contributions. May we pursue spiritual maturity together in all of these areas and others. Leaning on the Holy Spirit. Leaning on one another as we grow and mature in the faith. So that God would be honored. And that the gospel of Jesus Christ might go forth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Lord, thank you for the book of Philippians and specifically this chapter that we've been able to dive into this past number of weeks. I pray, God, that you would take that which I've shared. And Lord, um, I pray that your word would be the most convincing piece. Um, That, Lord, you would apply these things to each and every one of our hearts as individuals in a way that only our gentle loving Father can do. Lord, thank you for the invitation to grow, the invitation to to mature in the faith, the invitation to reflect the character of Christ in the world around us. Lord, may we seize upon this opportunity and bring honor and glory to you in the midst of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.